You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. The subject of our 10th lecture is Catholic Social Thought and the Foreign Policy of a Nation. In my oral remarks, I will focus on the just war theory. In my written text, I will deal with human rights and development. The most urgent task of Catholic social teaching is to keep the principles of the just war doctrine before the eyes of government leaders and citizens. It is also the role of Catholic social teaching to remind citizens and government leaders of a nation's responsibilities to contribute to the international common good in the measure possible. For example, great powers like the United States have a duty to help create order in the world and to promote development and respect for human rights where this work is feasible and prudent. Catholic social teaching also reminds individuals and non-governmental associations, including the churches, what they might do to help the citizens of other nations. You know, for example, sometimes parishes in the United States adopt a parish in Africa, and the parishes will donate money to the African parishes, perhaps donate money specifically to specific students so that they might get an education. So not everything has to be done on a governmental level, but some things really can be done in this way. Other ways, you know, good things can be accomplished are through faith-based institutions. You know, when the government gives aid to these institutions in foreign countries, they often, you know, can funnel the aid much better to the people than if the aid were given to government leaders of those countries. In our discussion of just war, I will briefly discuss the thought of Augustine and Aquinas and then turn to three contemporary sources, the Catechism of the Catholic Church and one of the books of James Turner Johnson and an article by George Weigel. First to Augustine. How does one work for peace, according to Augustine? Augustine argues that justice preserves the peace. Justice exists writes Ernest Fortin in his commentary on Augustine, when the body is ruled by the soul, when the lower appetites are ruled by reason, and when reason itself is ruled by God. This same hierarchy is or should be observed in society as a whole and is encountered when virtuous subjects obey wise rulers, whose minds are in turn subject to the divine law. This means that citizens and rulers must strive to achieve order in their soul. Order in the soul is achieved by the practice of all the virtues. I recall our early discussion of justice when we said the first definition of justice being to give others their due, but the second was to achieve order in the soul. Now, how does Augustine define peace? His famous definition is peace is the tranquility of order. And that order is produced by the presence of justice in the souls of individuals and in the various institutions of society. So in the City of God, Book 19, Chapter 13, Augustine says, the peace of the body is the ordered proportion of its parts, the peace of the irrational soul is the ordered repose of the appetites, the 
peace of the rational soul is the ordered agreement of knowledge and action. The peace between a mortal man and God is an ordered obedience in faith under the eternal law. And the peace among human beings is ordered concord. The peace of the household is an ordered concord concerning commanding and obeying among those who dwell together. The peace of the city is an ordered concord concerning commanding and obeying among the citizens. The peace of the heavenly city is a fellowship perfectly ordered and harmonious, enjoying God and each other in God. And then he concludes, the peace of all things is the tranquility of order. Now, peace within an individual is disrupted when he indulges disordered appetites and when he doesn't act according to his knowledge of the good. Concord of the family or the city is, of course, disrupted by the disordered passions in the souls of individuals. The inordinate desire for pleasure, power, gain, glory, honor, or revenge could lead individuals to disrupt the concord of the household or the city. The peace between man and God depends on obedience to God's will. Peace among human beings also depends on the universal obedience to God's will. Insofar as human beings disobey God, they will be at odds at each other's. Cain's killing of Abel quickly followed the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Not everyone recognizes that for Augustine, peace depends not only on law, but also on virtue in the souls of individuals. Political community cannot be rightly ordered if individuals, especially the leaders, don't have order in their souls produced by the practice of virtues. And what is causing the crisis in Iraq, if not the disorder in the soul of Saddam Hussein? The Iraqi leader wants to make and use weapons of mass destruction. No law is going to stop him. It is a misreading of Augustine to think that tranquillitas ordinis, or the tranquility of order, refers only to a dynamic and rightly ordered community that can be achieved without justice in the souls of individuals. Augustine, of course, would recognize that the desire for gain or the threat of force might induce a bad state or an individual tyrant to forsake his evil public purposes. So a peace process might yield some results, even if no effort is made to overcome the vices of the principal antagonist in a conflict. But any peace process will have great difficulty in forging a peace between bitter enemies, such as Israelis and Palestinians, if the anger and hatred of so many individuals do not lessen. What does Augustine think about the inevitability of war? Simply stated, Augustine would say, because of sin, war is inevitable. So the disorder in the souls of individuals lead one state to make war on another. In the words of Ernest Fortin, again, however much one may dislike and regret it, war is unavoidable, not because good men want it, but because it is not within their power to avoid it altogether, since it is imposed on them by the wicked. Now, is it right and just to resist the attacks of the wicked? Augustine believes the evil purposes of the wicked must be resisted in the interest of justice. Summarizing Augustine's position, Fortin writes, nothing is more injurious to mankind than that evildoers should be given free reign to prosper and use their prosperity to oppress the good. Now, does the New Testament allow people to use force in resisting the attacks of the wicked? Yes, says Augustine. 
He cites the example of the Roman centurion to whom Jesus said, Men, I say to you, I have not found such faith in Israel. If Jesus disapproved of the profession of arms, Augustine implies, surely he would have said something to the soldier. In letter 138, Augustine says, Indeed, if Christian teaching condemned all wars, then the advice given in the gospel to the soldiers asking for salvation would have been to throw down their arms and quit the military completely. What they were told, however, was terrorize no one, accuse no one falsely, and be content with your pay. Luke chapter 3, verse 14. With these words, John the Baptist commands them to be content with their own pay. He certainly does not prohibit them from serving as soldiers. Augustine interprets this statement of John the Baptist to be the mind of Christ. Now, what kind of guidance does Augustine give to political leaders who wage war? He says, be a peacemaker, then even by fighting so that through your victory, you might bring those whom you defeat to the advantages of peace. Let necessity slay the warring foe, not your will. As violence is returned to one who rebels and resists, so should mercy be one who has been conquered or captured, especially when there is not fear of a disturbance of peace. This is in letter 189 to Boniface. Boniface was a Roman governor in the province of Africa. Now in letter 138, Augustine says, accordingly, if this earthly republic kept the Christian precepts, wars themselves would not be waged without benevolence, so that for the sake of the peaceful union of piety and justice, the welfare of the conquered would be more readily considered. Note that Augustine wants political leaders to protect the innocent from unjust aggression. And he wants victorious leaders to benefit the souls of the conquered who disrupted the peace. Evil people benefit when their license for wrongdoing is wrested away. Note also that Augustine tells leaders to look at just wars as lamentable necessities. Here are his words in the City of God, Book 19, Chapter 7. They say, however, that the wise man will wage only just wars as if mindful that he is human, he would rather lament that he is subject to the necessity of waging just wars. Augustine also says that the good political leader should always lament the iniquity in others, even if it did not give rise to the necessity of war. And what does Augustine blame in war? The desire for harming, the cruelty of revenge, the restless and implacable mind, the savageness of revolting, the lust for dominating, and similar things. These are what are justly blamed in wars. Augustine is perhaps most famous for what Ernest Fortin says is the third-party principle. In other words, that you have people with sufficient authority and power, you know, have a responsibility to protect the innocent from being hurt by wicked regimes. Now, if we turn to Thomas Aquinas, we find that his treatment of war is in the Summa Theologiae under the heading of charity. And he gives three reasons why war would be justified. He says, first, in order for war to be just, three things are necessary. First, the authority of the sovereign by whose command the war is to be waged. What he means by that is that you have to have a legitimate authority declaring war. It's not up to a private individual to decide to go to war against somebody.
Secondly, you need a just cause. He says a just cause is required, namely that those who are attacked should be attacked because they deserve it on account of some fault. And thirdly, it is necessary that the belligerent should have a rightful intention so that they intend the advancement of good or the avoidance of evil. And he quotes St. Augustine to this effect. Augustine says, true religion looks upon as peaceful those wars that are waged not for motives of aggrandizement or cruelty, but with the object of securing peace, of punishing evildoers, and of uplifting the good. Aquinas also considers the question you know, whether the New Testament would allow Christians to go to war. He poses this objection, question 40 of the second part of the second part of the Summa. And the objection reads, whatever is contrary to a divine precept is a sin, but war is contrary to a divine precept, for it is written in Matthew chapter 5, verse 39, but I say to you not to resist evil. And Romans 12, verse 19, not revenging yourselves, my dearly beloved, but give place unto wrath. Therefore, war is always sinful. And his response to that is, again, a quotation from Augustine in letter 138, where Augustine says, those whom we have to punish with a kindly severity, it is necessary to handle in many ways against their will. But when we are stripping a man of the lawlessness of sin, it is good for him to be vanquished, since nothing is more hopeless than the happiness of sinners once arise a guilty impunity and an evil will like an internal enemy. All right, so much for Aquinas. If we look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you know, published in 1994 in the United States, these are the conditions listed for legitimate defense by military force. First, the damage inflicted by the aggressor on the nation or community of nations must be lasting, grave, and certain. Secondly, all other means of putting an end to it must have been shown to be impractical or ineffective. Third, there must be serious prospects of success. And fourth, the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated. The power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. This seems to be a way of talking about this principle of proportionality. Now, if we turn to James Turner Johnson and to George Weigel, we will see what some contemporary commentators have made of the thought of Augustine and Aquinas and some others. Now first, James Turner Johnson. He discusses jus ad bellum. This is the right to war, whether it is right or justifiable to use military force. And afterwards, he'll discuss jus in bello, which means right in the war. And that refers to war conduct. You know, how is the war carried on, you know, once it is declared. So first, the jus ad bellum. How can you determine whether you have a right to go to war? He mentions just cause, and he says that it is the duty of Christians in any just state to intercede, intervene on behalf of innocent neighbors 
who are the object of aggression. Johnson calls this an interventionist conception of just cause and attributes it rightly to Augustine, Augustine's third party principle. This is Johnson, rather than concentrating solely on defense as the only allowable just cause for war, perhaps it is also necessary to keep in mind what Augustine saw clearly, that it is a moral duty for those who possess power to protect those who are relatively impotent when they are being threatened by others more powerful than they. Now, Johnson mentions Aquinas' view that punishment of evildoers could be a justifying cause. But he also adds that today, the only justifying cause allowed in international war is self-defense. He also brings up holy wars. In his words, finally, there is the conception that all holy wars are just, which has its secular counterpart in the various concepts of ideological war, war of national liberation and people's war. You know, in those wars too, people think that they are necessarily just. Now what about would a just cause exist if one nation had sufficient evidence that another nation was planning to use weapons of mass destruction, chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons? Would that qualify as a just cause? Personally, I think it would if you had reliable intelligence. All right, a second criteria for the U.S. ad bellum is right authority. In Johnson's words, the requirement that there must be a right authority for the use of force means that we must inquire whether there is any authority who can control the employment of force so as to limit its effects. And behind that, to inquire as to the breadth and depth of popular support this authority possesses. So Johnson then is referring not only to the head of a legitimate government, but also to the heads of revolutionary groups. A third criteria is the use of force must be a last resort. Now this is a mean between militarism and pacifism. The use of force can be legitimate when government rulers have done their best to avoid war through the exercise of political prudence. And a fourth criteria is proportionality. And this probably is a little bit more difficult to understand. The way he describes it is this, he says, the aim of the idea of proportionality is to ensure that the overall damage to human value that will result from the resort to force will be at least balanced evenly by the degree to which the same or other important values are preserved or protected. You know, let's think about this criteria in the light of the recent Iraqi war. You know, when people were trying to decide whether this was a just war, they would bring up considerations such as, well, if Hussein has weapons of mass destruction and he is planning to use them himself or give them to terrorists, then it would seem that it would be right to stop him from doing that. And then others mentioned, well, if the United States goes into Iraq, it is possible that it will unleash a clash of civilizations between the Muslims and the Christians and perhaps induce more young people to become terrorists so that even if we were to disarm Hussein, evils might be greater than the good we accomplished by disarming. So these are the kinds of questions that would have to be considered under this principle of proportionality. Johnson mentions that the principle of proportionality actually challenges total war. He said the obliteration, bombing in World War II 
the principle of proportionality requires limitations on the destructiveness of the weapons employed. Not everyone realizes that the United States and the British engaged in obliteration bombing of German cities such as Dresden. And many ethicists think that this was really a violation of the just war theory to do that. All right, now let's turn to jus in bello, whether the particular form of the use of force is justified during the conduct of the war. So if you think of jus in bello as war conduct and jus in bellum as the war decision, there is also a principle of proportionality used to determine whether there is jus in bello. And this has to do really with the kinds of weapons and the kinds of attacks that one would use. Would it be justified you know, to attack a particular target you know, if there's going to be so much collateral damage, which collateral damage referring to the death of innocent civilians? You know, think of the recent attempt of the United States to bomb a place where they thought Saddam Hussein might be. Well, of course, that bomb killed other civilians, and they had to you know, decide well, whether this would be justifiable, given the good they hoped to achieve by removing Hussein from power. Now, James Turner Johnson said this principle of proportionality would point toward counterforce targeting of nuclear weapons rather than counter-city targeting. And it would certainly lead to a presumption against the use of chemical and biological weapons, since these weapons tend to be indiscriminate, with the potential for causing long-term damage. All right, a second principle, which is readily understandable, is discrimination or non-combatant protection. You know, this principle, of course, is violated by terrorism and by direct attacks on civilian population. Now, if we turn to Weigel's essay, Moral Clarity in a Time of War, which he published in January of 2003, there are some interesting comments pertaining to the just war theory. He says, Weigel says, the just war tradition is a theory of statecraft. The tradition logically starts with odd bellum questions, you know, war decision questions, because the just war tradition is a tradition of statecraft, a tradition that attempts to define morally worthy political ends. Weigel strongly disagrees with the view of the Catholic bishops that there is a presumption against violence. That view, he argues, is not consistent with seeing that war is an extension of politics. The political leader's first responsibility is to protect his people, not to avoid the use of force. Now, my response to Weigel is this, that a state's responsibility for the safety and security of its citizens is not incompatible with making every effort to avoid the use of violence. In other words, the presumption against violence should be a top priority for political leaders, along with the protection of the nation's citizens from aggression. If the latter requires force, so be it. Now, regarding just cause, Weigel says, in the classic just war tradition, just cause was understood as defense against aggression, the recovery of something wrongly taken or the punishment of evil. Now, since World War II, defense against aggression has become the only cause, both in international law and theology. And Weigel thinks that this way of looking at just cause is inadequate. And his example is this. To take an obvious current example, Weigel writes, 
It makes little moral sense to suggest the United States must wait until a North Korea or Iraq or Iran actually launches a ballistic missile tipped with a nuclear, biological, or chemical weapon of mass destruction before we legitimately do something about it. Can we not say that in the hands of certain kinds of states, the mere possession of weapons of mass destruction constitutes an aggression, or at the very least, an aggression waiting to happen? End quote. So Weigel is saying the nature of the regime is crucial in the moral analysis. And he would say that a preemptive military action to deny a rogue state that kind of destructive capacity would not contravene the defense against aggression, which is allowed under just cause. Regarding competent authority, he says that it, it doesn't rest in the United Nations only. And the authority of a state cannot be forfeited because it supposedly did something to bring terrorist attacks upon itself. Regarding last resort, he says this should not be understood in a simplistic way. At some point, it may become clear that the only alternative to the threats and aggression of a rogue state or a terrorist organization is the use of force. You don't have to try things that obviously won't work. And lastly, regarding the location of the just war tradition, he says this, if the just war tradition is indeed a tradition of statecraft, then the proper role of religious leaders and public intellectuals is to do everything possible to clarify the moral issues at stake in a time of war, while recognizing that what we might call the charism of responsibility lies elsewhere with duly constituted public authorities, who are more fully informed about the relevant facts and who must bear the weight of responsible decision-making and governance. It is simple clericalism to suggest that religious leaders and public intellectuals own the just war tradition in a singular way. You know, that means political leaders have to determine themselves, you know, whether they have a just cause for going to war. And ultimately, responsibility before God in their conscience rests with them. In a recent Meet the Press show, Tim Russert asked Donald Rumsfeld, you know, whether he recognized that his decision to go to war, his participation in that decision made him responsible for God and his conscience. And he said, you know, absolutely, that he accepted that responsibility. And it has to be that way because the religious leaders are not gonna know all the details and the facts. They have the responsibility of putting the principles before the government leaders, but then the government leaders really have to make decisions. And we hope that they will accurately assess the facts and that they will apply the principles accurately. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.